Okay, so here we are, abnormal psychology. We are on, of course we don't follow the uh, chapters in order because I'm kind of odd and strange like that. Um, so we talked about what is abnormal behavior, the historical perspectives of the abnormal behavior, the contemporary perspectives of abnormal behavior, how to diagnose abnormal behavior. And before we get into the diagnoses themselves, which will happen after our first exam, let's finish talking about some general ideas when we talk about abnormal behavior and the study of abnormal behavior. Let's talk about chapter 16. So chapter 16 is legal, ethical, and professional issues in abnormal psychology. We've got 33 slides. I think we can make it through. So, come back, there we go. Who treats mental disorders? So it's kind of a good question to ask since we're talking about, again, legal issues. Who is legally or who should be able to? Now I gotta tell you, anybody can hang a shingle and say, hey, I'm a counselor, but just because someone hangs a shingle doesn't mean that they are trained to be a counselor, right? So these are people with appropriate training. The variety of professions that have been trained in the assessment and treatment of psychological disorders are follows. So you see up here we have psychiatrists. We've got clinical psychologists. Um, if it, you have psychologist after your name, then you have to have had your doctorate degree, either a PhD or PsyD. Psychiatrists are medical doctors, so you can see a lot of training in, again, these positions. You're going to also pay significant amounts of money per hour for that if you don't have insurance. Psychological associates are usually people trained to be psychologists, but they don't have their license yet. Or maybe they don't have their doctorate. They have a master's degree. Um, counseling psychologists, again, as soon as you see the ists, psychologists, we know doctorate degrees. Licensed professional counselors um, have master's degree level um, and they are licensed. They are able to hang a shingle and get uh, insurance reimbursement. Again, so they have the necessary training. That's what licensing means, is that you know this person is at least trained and has had appropriate training and the skill set to do what they're saying they're going to be doing. We have licensed or uh, psychiatric nurse practitioners, clinical social workers, and there are other positions, again, that could be used in the assessment or treatment, but they tend to be more entry-level positions and maybe don't have adequate training in order to officially provide treatment. Again, you know, if you get an associate degree in psych, are you able to go and counsel and provide treatment? You, you don't have enough training yet. A master's degree, mm, still pretty general. Start getting to the master's level, you start honing in. You know, family and marriage therapy, things like that. So again, that's some of the stuff we see. The interface of mental disorders in the law. What we know is that sometimes people with mental concerns do end up in the legal system because they can't conform to society's rules. You know, someone's standing on the, on the street corner and they're, they're yelling and screaming because they believe that Satan's coming for them, right? That's considered a disturbance. Many people will come over and, and try to get them to, to move on, and if they don't move on, then sometimes they're disturbing the peace. So again, they could end up being in trouble. Psychological or psychiatric evaluations are essential. When we look at these individuals in the legal system, um, to really give critical information to determine whether they you know, understand 
they're competent to stand trial, if maybe they're suffering from um, insanity, which is actually a legal term, not a medical one, and to render a judgment of whether they should be committed or not. So all important issues to discuss. The process of legal determination is less precise. Um, clinical is a little bit more checks and balances. We only have some basic standards, we're going to talk about those today, that we have to look at when we look at legal determination of competency to stand trial or, or responsibility for behavior. Um, what we know is that frequently um, it requires predictions of what we believe might happen in the future. And the problem with that is psychologists are not good predictors. You know, our, we run with this rule of thumb and the rule of thumb is this idea that um, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior but that doesn't allow for change. So it's one of the things we have to be careful of because we would rather err on the side of safety in terms of dangerousness than on the other side. Um, laws exist concerning civil commitment and involuntary uh, hospitalization we have to follow. But here's what's really crazy is that the laws vary from state to state. Um, and even between countries, what's okay to do in the United States, not necessarily okay to do in some other state or in some other country, I should say. And then mental health professionals may be involved in these competency and sanity rulings and that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how do we determine competency and sanity. So here are the legal issues in abnormal psychology we're going to talk about. Competency to stand trial, competency to manage affairs, the idea of not guilty by reason of insanity, the idea of a civil commitment and what is that, some rights. Believe it or not, in the past, um, and a lot of the reasons why we have the rights we have today is because people's freedoms were violated. Um, there's some cases your book will talk about that you should look at. Um, one of them is an interesting case. I can't think what the title is right now. It's probably because I'm recording this and I can't, I can't think about it. But there was a, a man who was accused of a crime and they decided that he was not competent to stand trial. He could not aid in his own defense. So he was going to be locked up in a mental facility until he was able to do that. Well, he had MR issues. That's never going to change. He was mute. That's never going to change. And I believe he was blind. That's never going to change. So they're going to lock him up indefinitely. Well, they did. They locked him up for a long period of time. And he was never going to get any better. He was never going to be able to stand trial. So of course, a legal battle ensued. And so now we have right to treatment as well as a right not to be treated. And limited terms of how long we can hold someone without reevaluation. And then the last term we're going to talk about is deinstitutionalization. So, ready to get started? All right, here we go. Competency to stand trial. Competency means the person's mental ability to handle his or her own affairs. So, in most jurisdictions, people who are charged with a crime are considered competent to stand trial. In other words, if you did something wrong, we're going to take you into a court uh, courtroom and we're going to put you on trial for the charges that are against you but where you can only do that if these three things, these re three requirements are understood. So number one, do you understand the nature of the charges? Do you understand why you're in this courtroom? Do you understand what charges are against you? Number two, do you appreciate the seriousness 
of those charges and the possible results of conviction. Do you realize if you are found guilty of these charges, what could happen? And number three, are you able to assist an attorney in your own defense? So let's say that Electra, I'm going to pick on you. Is that okay? Okay. So let's say that um, something happens. I, I don't know. You take a medication for a, a medical problem. You're driving to class, and the medication causes you to get drowsy. Now, this is going to be really like bad. So, all right. So it causes you to get drowsy. You're driving here. You swerve across the road. You hit a school bus of kids, and there are people who are hurt or killed. Now, that could cause you to snap. Would you agree? I mean, knowing that that's not something you would normally do. It's not like you purposefully did it. It was a side effect of medication. So now, they're taking you to trial, right? Because people were hurt and killed. And they're taking you to trial. Are you sane enough? Are you with it enough to be able to provide your attorney with enough information to defend yourself? Or do you just sit there and because of depression or mental illness, you're like, I should just be killed? Well, that's not aiding in your defense. You see? So if you're not able, if you're not competent to stand trial, you're not competent to defend yourself. And again, you can see in a case like this, maybe you're suffering from major depression as a result of the accident, and you're blaming yourself, and you believe you're worthless and helpless and you should die. Well, that's really not, that's not helping your defense. So that's just an example. Again, that's a pretty bad example. Thank you for letting me, you know. I, but that, has that ever happened in the face of the planet? Probably has, at least some point. So again, these are the three requirements. If someone doesn't meet these requirements, then whoop, then you can't put them on trial, at least not right now. Okay. I don't. Uh, okay, stop moving on me, but here, let's do it this way. Okay, maybe not. Um, okay, technology problem. There we go. There, finally moved, right? So, if incompetent, whew, took so long just to get there, right? What do we need to know? Well, then the legal proceedings are put on hold for a temporary period of time, right? And they're put on hold so that treatment can be provided to restore you to competency, right? But the problem with that is sometimes it resulted in long-term confinement, like my example that I gave you. Maybe some conditions are never going to go away. Mental retardation, never going to go away or we, intellectual disability, sorry, I need to use the new term, right? And so now there are rules regarding the length of pretrial confinement. In other words, there's this idea that you have to, um, you have to, to take someone to court within a set amount of time. I, I forget what the, it's right there on the tip of my tongue. It's one of those mornings, isn't it? Due process. So you have to have due process, and in other words, timeliness of the court case. I can't try you four years later for something that maybe happened. It's got to be a time limit, 
So we do have some court cases that really have kind of defined that. Now assessing competency is not an easy task because what if someone was motivated to act out? Like maybe, Electra, I'll just run with you, right? Maybe you don't really feel guilty, but you know if you feel guilty and you act like you want to die and all that stuff, then they won't hold you responsible and so you're kind of faking it or exaggerating symptoms because maybe you feel like that will help you get out of it or maybe get some sympathy or something else. Does that make sense? So again, some people are what we call malingering, faking. That's what malingering means. Expert opinions of prosecution evaluations are very different th than expert opinions of defense evaluators. Sometimes what we'll see is you can get someone for the defense that comes up with a completely different diagnosis than the prosecution or excuse or reason for the behavior. Remember, there's not one reason why things happen. We talked about that in the common pers the, the, the uh, contemporary perspectives. There could be multiple reasons why someone's behavior is the way it is. So do you think that you could find an expert to support your side? It happens. So you've got two experts, one on either side, and both are saying, uh, we know what we're talking about and we believe this. And then it's up to the judge or jury to kind of figure that out. So sometimes a treatment guardian is even necessary. Someone assigned by the courts to monitor your treatment to make sure you're getting the treatment that you need. So that's competency to stand trial. Competency to stand trial happens after the crime. So the crime has happened and now we're determining can you be, you know, can you defend yourself in a courtroom? The other term that you see up here is not guilty by reason of insanity. And this has to do with sanity at the time of the crime, not at the time of the trial. So, Electra, since I'm picking on you today, I'll just keep. Let's say, let's change the scenario this time. Let's say that you uh, suffer from mental disorders. We'll say you're, you're schizophrenic and you um, don't take your medication, right? So you are actively psychotic. You are not in touch with reality. And you think it would look, you, you wonder, if you chop off a person's head, would they run around like a chicken with their head cut off? Because you, you, know, you know, chickens run around with their heads cut off. So you decide to cut somebody's head off. Because you're not sane, you're, you're, not, you're not with it, you're not in touch with reality right now. You do it. Now we put you on medication, we get you treated, right? Maybe even before competency to stand trial. We find that you're competent now to stand trial. But at the time of the crime, were you sane? And that's the question. Were you responsible? See, there's this idea, this belief that people are responsible for their actions and that you freely choose your choices. So it can't be a mental illness that caused you to do what you do. You have to be free to choose. That's what, what we're determining here. Notice competency and sanity involve independent judgments at different points in time. And you must be competent before sanity can be considered. And you go, wait, why? Well, because insane at the time of the crime is a court determination. That's what insanity, you know, the insanity defense is. You've got to be in court, but you're not going to be in court if you're not competent to stand trial. So while the insanity may have happened first, it's determined second. I know that's kind of odd. So think about that. If you have questions, let me know. And there's this long tradition in English law that if a person is so mentally deranged 
that they have no comprehension of the meaning of their criminal act, then they are legally not responsible for it. If you were schizophrenic and you had no way of knowing that you were going to be that detached from reality, that you would hurt those people, for example, or do whatever, or hurt a person, well then you're not responsible. Again, it goes back to this idea that people choose, freely choose to do what they want to do. Yes? Is that why most of the time a prosecutor's office wants to figure out if it was premeditated so that they can squash any chance of this happening? There you go, right? You said a prosecutor's office looking to determine if something was premeditated. Yes, if you thought about it, then it wasn't just an impulse. It didn't just happen. It wasn't just an accident. You planned it. You knew what you were calculated and what you did. That's a different story. Then you chose. You're responsible. And there's different standards, and that's what I'm going to show you next, is some of the different court cases and standards throughout time that have been used to determine um, insanity. 1843, in England, the first standard was called the McNaughton Rule, and it said, do you know right from wrong, period. It was that simple. Do you know right from wrong? Do you know murder's wrong? Yes, I know murder's wrong. Okay, then you murdered someone, you're responsible. Did you know right from wrong at the time of the crime? Which is one of the reasons why we treat children differently. Think about it. If, does a child understand what their behavior is, that it's right or wrong. That's a very simple rule, but you know, uh, it gets a little muddy. It's maybe too simple. 1887, notice about 40 years later in Alabama, the irresistible impulse rule comes into play. So it's a, a more defined standard, if you will, or a different standard. A psychological drive or impulse that the individual could not control and had been compelled to do the crime. In other words, maybe you, you lost, you walked home, um, you walked into your house and your partner's in bed with someone else and you just flip out and there is no way you can control it. You raged off the end and you just snapped and, and everything was mayhem and when you were done you came out of it and you went, oh my goodness, what the hell did I just do? You couldn't control yourself. Believe it or not, there's an example of this um, in pop culture. If you remember the show Seinfeld, right? Seinfeld. Um, show here in the United States that you know people watched for a long time and had a long history. One of the episodes um, was, uh, why is my brain not working today? Um, name the characters in Seinfeld. Help me, please. We've got Jerry, Elaine, Kramer. It's the other one that I can't remember. Kind of heavy set. George, George Costanza, thank you, the character, right? So, in the episode I'm thinking about, George Costanza goes over to his girlfriend's house. They're serving, they go over to the girlfriend's house and it's dinner time and they serve dinner time. He goes and he goes to throw the plates, like the garbage away, and when he opens up the garbage can, there's this box with an eclair sitting right on top. And the box is closed, but this eclair is sitting there and he looks at it and he's like, oh, 
it looks like a yummy eclair. He reaches down, he goes to take a bite of the eclair, and right then, uh, the girlfriend's mom walks in and sees him eating out of the garbage. So I know you go, right? The next day, they're sitting around the diner, because Seinfeld, they always sit around the diner, and Elaine and Jerry and George are all sitting together, and he tells them the story. He goes, I was caught right there. And Elaine says, what are you going to claim? The Twinkie defense. And, of course, the laugh track kicks in. Uh, Twinkie defense because he's eating a, you know, an eclair. But believe it or not, there is a case with the Twinkie defense. Dan White was in California. He was a supervisor in California. He lost his nomination, his job. It was an elected position he was in, and he lost the election to someone else. He went and killed the person that, that won the election, and he was put on trial for it. And during the trial, his lawyer said that he was so strung out because he was so upset over the, the loss of his political career that he had gorged himself on sodas and on donuts and Twinkies and sweets that he could not control his behavior when he snapped. The jury heard such a, a strange argument. They actually gave him, I believe, seven years for killing these two individuals. So they gave him a reduced sentence for the Twinkie defense. They didn't say he wasn't responsible, but they minimized his responsibility. Of course he got out, and when he got out, do you think the community was embracing him? No. Hell no. So here's the sad part of the story. Dan White commits suicide. But the Twinkie defense is a real case. So when Seinfeld uses that in pop culture, you know, what, George, what are you going to claim? That, oh, the sugar overcame you? you? You had an irresistible impulse to eat the, the eclair, and you could not stop yourself. Yeah, there is a case called the Twinkie Defense. So search online and you'll find it, right? So that's the Irresistible Impulse Act. Now we're 1959. Notice it's about 100 years, right? We have the Durnham Rule, happened here in the United States also. An accused person is not, here's what it found. An accused person is not criminally responsible if it's shown that the unlawful act was the product of a mental disease or defect. So, um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example here. Some of these are really tough, and you see this rule is proved to be very difficult to apply effectively. How do you determine that the behavior someone's doing is actually the result of their mental illness? It's tricky, isn't it? But again, it still goes back to this idea. Were you freely choosing? Were you responsible at the time of the crime? And if no, if it's the result of a mental illness, then you're not. Someone who maybe, for example, is antisocial. I can't conform to the laws of society, so I'm going to act out. Our guy from the mall parking lot who stole the car and ran over the elderly woman, was that an end result of his behavior, or did he choose that? Do you see where that's really difficult to determine? It can be a little, hmm. all right? Another standard came in 1962. The American Law Institute issued a more comprehensive standard, and it's called the Model Penal Code. And here's what it says. I'm just going to read it to you, right? The standard says that a person is not responsible for criminal conduct if, at the time of such conduct, 
as a result of a mental disease or defect, he or she lacks the substantial capacity to either appreciate the criminality, the wrongfulness of his or her conduct, or to confirm his or her conduct to the requirements of the law. So in other words, at the time of the crime, right, did they, were they not able to conform to the standards of the law because they just didn't, they can't, for whatever reason, right? It says here the terms mental disease or defect does not include an abnormality manifested only by repeated criminal or otherwise antisocial conduct. So you can't say, well, I've been in and out of jail so much, I can't control my behavior anymore. Nah, eh, wrong answer. So they ruled out antisocial. So our guy from the mall parking lot, nah, this isn't going to save him. He's going to be held responsible. Because the idea is, even though you're antisocial, you still know right from wrong. You still know the law. You still know what you're doing is wrong. You just don't care. That's a different story. The Federal Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984 described insanity for the standard for all federal courts and says the act limited volition component to conforming conduct of the law partially returned it back to the McNaughton rule. So this was 1984, so you can see we're, we're trying to come full circle. Here's what this says. A person charged with a criminal offense should be found not guilty by reason of insanity if it's shown that as a result of mental disease or mental retardation, notice that one's in there, he was unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct at the time of the offense. Now what I'm gonna tell you is not everyone loves this law or this act. It's that mental retardation part that comes in here. Now we, aren't, we haven't talked about mental retardation or uh, intellectual disability, but one of the things that you need to know is a majority of those who are intellectually disabled are in what's called the mild range of intellectual disability. And people in the mild range of intellectual disability know right from wrong. They know it. They can conform their standards, but this federal law, this federal act, actually opened the door and the, in uh, Texas there were individuals who were on death row who were taken off of death row and the, the uh, I want to say the, the court system in Texas, might have gone to the Supreme Court, found that you can, if you have mental retardation, you can't be put to death because the belief is that you don't fully understand the nature of the crime that you did. That's not necessarily true. So, again. Um, skepticism among the public about the insanity defense. Here's what you need to know about the insanity defense. It's rarely used in the U.S. You get, might go, oh, people use that all the time. Nope, about 1% of the cases in the U.S. people claim the insanity defense. And ready for this? It's successful in about 1% of those 1%. So getting out of jail by reason of insanity is not a very easy fight. That is a very uphill battle. Um, someone with significant intellectual deficit should not fake good on an intelligence test, but someone with average or above IQ could fake bad. So that's one of the things they said. Well, you know, on intelligence tests, you know, maybe I can fake bad, and we do know someone with average intelligence could fake bad and try to pretend like they're not mentally able to understand the law, but someone who's low in mental, you know, 
functioning, maybe can't do it as well. So the 2002 law prevents executing those with intellectual disability, and that's what happened after the cases down in Texas on uh, death row. Some states, a person can be found guilty but mentally ill, and this requires treatment uh, for the mental disorder, uh, but then they're also sent to prison and receive treatment there. One of the famous cases here in, in Pennsylvania is John DuPont. John DuPont was heir to the DuPont chemical fortune. Um, he had a big estate. He had a private um, trainer come in to train him uh, to help him with you know, physical exercise. He was a uh, Olympic wrestler and John DuPont killed him. And he was found to be not guilty, or no, guilty but mentally ill, G-B-M-I, guilty but mentally ill is what they call it. Or uh, some of the other states abbreviate it slightly different. But what they found was that he was responsible. So instead of getting life for killing this person, he got a 15 to 30 year sentence, but while in prison, he was forced to go to mental health treatment and counseling, because it's the only way he'll he would be considered for parole as if he participated actively in treatment. Because if he's mentally ill, then he needs treatment. But they're still holding him responsible. That's the guilty part. Does that make sense? So it's some of the stuff that we see. Um, says previously the end result has been little difference, believe it or not, in defendants who've been found guilty but are uh, insane. Not, reason by, uh, not guilty by reason of insanity or if they've been found guilty because maybe they might spend years in prison if they're guilty, but if they're not guilty by reason of insanity, they end up spending years in a mental health facility locked up. So again, really not too much difference. Do you spend 15 years in prison or do you spend 15 years locked in a state hospital? Now one would argue probably the state hospital is a little less restrictive. But still, that's some of the stuff that we see. 1983, Jones versus United States, the Supreme Court ruled that those acquitted by reason of insanity could not be held uh, indefinitely. Well, actually found that they could be held indefinitely until they proved themselves no longer dangerous, even if this conviction uh, was longer than the sentence would have carried out. So there actually has been a, a case, and I think the uh, John Hinckley case is a pretty uh, good example. John Hinckley, you know, um, killed John Lennon, right? Who killed John Lennon? Hinckley. Yeah. I think so. I'm having a brain fart again. I mean, you can tell it's a Monday, can't you? First class of the semester, or Mark first class of the week. Chapman is an American criminal who murdered English musician John Oh, Lennon. so then it's Hinckley that shot uh, Reagan, I think. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, one of them, I believe Hinckley, um, was found not guilty by reason of insanity. He's in jail even today. And so, again, he comes up for parole. Do they want to let him go? Is he saying, mm. the 2002 law by the Supreme Court said, we could potentially hold him indefinitely. We have to do periodic assessments of whether he's still insane or not. But we can hold him indefinitely, which could be longer than what the original sentence might have been. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's talk about some cases. I'm trying to get to these cases. I want to show you some examples, right? Um, so here are some fine cases. These are some high-profile cases 
where the insanity defense was used, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. So 1977, Francine Hughes poured gasoline over her husband while he was drunk and asleep. She set him on fire. She claimed she was not responsible due to years of beating and threat because she was a victim of domestic violence and abuse. Uh, he would, you know, get drunk and beat on him or beat on her. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity. 1979, Ken Bianchi uh, claimed that he had multiple personality disorder and therefore was not responsible for the series of murders and rapes in the Hillside Strangler case. He was known as the Hillside Strangler. Actually, he was pretty good at pretending to have multiple personalities and during cross-examination, a very well-trained therapist tripped him up. He was found guilty. So he did not, uh, it was not a successful use of that. In 1981, John Hinckley, here we are, right? There we go, attempted to assassinate President Reagan to impress uh, Jodie Foster. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. 1992, Jeffrey Dahmer, tortured, raped, killed, mutilated, and partially eight 15 young men. At trial, he initially entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity due to severe paraphilia and then changed his plea to guilty but insane, and he was found guilty but sane. 1993, Lorena Bobbitt um, cut off her husband's penis with a knife while he slept. After he came home drunk and raped her, she claimed uh, depression and PTSD from years of abuse and again domestic violence. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity. 2000, Michael McDermott, uh, gunned down seven co-workers and then claimed that Michael, the archangel, um, archangel, had sent him to stop the Holocaust and to earn a soul by killing, he was found guilty. So reason of insanity did not work for him. 2001, Andrea Yates drowned her five kids in a bathtub to save them from damnation due to a sinful life she was leading. She'd been diagnosed with postpartum uh, psychosis, a severe form of postpartum depression where you lose touch with reality. She was found guilty, sentenced to a uh, life term in 2002, was granted a new trial, found not guilty by reason of insanity in 2006. And then 2002, this is the last one we'll talk about, Lee Boyd Malvo, uh, Malvo uh, participated in the Beltway sniper shootings of 12 people in Virginia and uh, um, Maryland. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity because his will was under the complete control of co-shooter um, John Allen Muhammad and he was found guilty. So again, don't think that this is the way to get out of jail. It only is successful in about 1% of the cases it's attempted. And that guilty but mentally insane, or you know, guilty but mentally ill, is a way to still hold people accountable and yet still acknowledge mental illness. Forensic use of the DSM-5. What about the DSM-5? Where does it weigh in on all this? Well, here's a quote from them. Um, in most situations, the clinical diagnosis of the DSM-5 mental disorders, such as intellectual disability, schizophrenia, major neurocognitive disorder, gambling disorder, or pedophilic disorder, does not imply that the individual with such a condition meets the legal criteria for the presence of a mental disorder or a specific legal standard. So in other words, just being diagnosed 
is not sufficient enough to say that you don't know right from wrong. So the APA has kind of weighed in on this and really said that the diagnosis of mental illness separate from the acts needs to be considered. Because the act, you could be, again, have major depressive disorder, but that doesn't mean that you, it made you go do this other act or that you didn't know right from wrong. So again, you can see how challenging this can be. Says, even when diminished control over one's behavior is a feature of the disorder, having the dis diagnosis itself does not demonstrate that particular individual was unable to control his or her behavior at the time of the crime. So again, that's a quote from the APA, from the DSM-5. Just because you have a mental disorder does not mean you don't know right from wrong. So still going back to that McNaughton rule. That simple rule from what, 1843? Do you know right from wrong? And then what's the caveat about it? So that's really what we're talking about. Questions about any of these? Am I going at an okay pace? Sorry, I feel like I'm all over the place today, but again, I don't know. Maybe it's just a Monday. Civil commitment. Let's switch gears now. Everything we've talked about so far has been a crime has been committed. So someone has done an act that violates a legal standard or societal norm, right? Now we're going to talk about civil commitment. Civil commitment is where a person is involuntarily committed to a mental health facility, but they did nothing wrong. This is the key feature here. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't break any laws. And this is going to sound sad. We do not have a law against suicide. If you try to commit suicide, we cannot lock you up for attempted murder. It doesn't work that way. But if someone's suicidal, is that a mental health concern? And I see you nodding your heads. Yeah, it is, right? So it is. So do we let someone who's suicidal wander the streets just to let them go and do whatever they want to do? Well, no, we don't. We don't want them to hurt themselves. So we can do what's called involuntary commitment. I'm going to lock them up in a facility until they are safe, until they can be released safely. So that's really what we're talking about here. Notice it depends on the degree of danger to self or others uh, by reason of a mental disorder. No crime has been committed. This is a big one. We are actually removing people's freedoms and no crime has been committed. It's essentially a court-ordered treatment, and it does vary from state to state. And it may be brief, a brief in duration, or it may be much longer. When I worked at Camp Hill State Prison, um, I was the mental health coordinator. What does that mean? That means that if someone was a danger to themselves or others, if they threatened other inmates, if they tried to hurt themselves or tried to hurt someone else, they would call me in and we would do a civil commitment. And you go, wait, they're already in jail. Yes, they're in jail. Yes. But you have freedoms in jail. You have freedoms to determine whether you're going to take a med or not. You have freedoms to determine what you have in your cell or not, to a degree. This means that they are so unstable that we are going to take those rights away from them, what limited rights they have. So I actually was involved. I would call up two attorneys. One attorney would represent the state. One attorney would represent the inmate. The inmate would come in and talk to the inmate about whether they believe they should be in treatment or not. And then we would have a court hearing at the cell to determine whether the person should um, 
be placed in a mental health facility within the prison system. So we actually have mental health hospitals within the prison system. Um, and I have to tell you, sometimes it was good. We had one guy who, uh, he was a large inmate. I mean, he was a huge man, 6'6 or something. I mean, he was big. Muscles, kind of remind me of George Foreman, like a boxer, Mike Tyson, or Mike, you know, that kind of form, you know. And he did believe that he was George Foreman. And he would, at times, start to get in people's faces. And we've seen this pattern before, where he would get in people's faces, and then he would swing at officers, and he would hurt people. And then, of course, he would get new charges, right? And then, of course, we would have to put him in restraints and all sorts of stuff. So we saw the pattern starting again. We could feel it come. We knew it was coming. Because it's almost like clockwork, right? We held a commitment hearing. I had an attorney come in to hear the case. The psychiatrist presented their side. The defense attorney presented their side and said, rightfully so, did he do anything? Just being threatening is not danger to self or others. Did he make a move? Did he take a swing? And he hadn't. He, he hadn't. But we had a feeling it was coming. But because he hadn't, and he did not want to go to treatment, we actually lost the civil commitment. So we couldn't move him to a mental health facility against his will. He wouldn't voluntarily sign him in because he didn't want to go there, right? And it's, believe it or not, later that night, he took a swing at an officer. And boom, now we can. But you ha there has to be a furtherance of the act. It can't be you're suicidal. You have to have made the act. Now, a 302 is an emergency commitment. 302 means I can hold you for 72 hours. You might say, well, why is that? Well, that's a much quicker standard. And within that 72 hours, I either get you to sign yourself in voluntarily or I hold a commitment called a 304. And the, the numbers have to do with the, the penal code, right? So, or the mental health code. So a 304 is a longer term commitment. It's up to 90 days placement in a mental health facility. And then at the end of 90 days, I think there's a 306, I want to say. I wasn't involved in those because I was just involved in 302 or 304 commitment hearings. But if you were going to stay longer than 90 days, they had to have another commitment hearing to say, you're still a danger to yourself. You're still not stable to release back into the regular population, we, even within the prison system. So again, this is the process that, that people would go through. And it's pretty elaborate. It's just like a court case, but nobody did anything wrong. They didn't violate the rules yet. The decisions include releasing the person, holding the person for further observation until the next hearing, or committing the person for treatment. That's the three kind of outcomes that can happen. Evidence must be clear and convincing. Again, you know what? It used to be in the day, all it took was one doctor to say she needs or he needs locked up, and then you were locked up indefinitely until it, that doctor signed you out. And you can imagine people would get rid of their spouses that way, right? They'd have them locked up. Now I don't have to worry about them. Um, of course, then it came, well, you need two doctor's opinions. Now we need, two, we need doctors to uh, you know, go to court and you need an actual court hearing. It's not just the doctor's word anymore. Now the 72 hour, two doctors can sign off. 
but within three days we have to let you go. And that's the 304. You got to have a bigger hearing. Does that kind of make sense? So it can get kind of interesting, right? Psychologists are really asked to predict a person's future behavior. And remember, we're not the best predictors. Issues with involuntary commitment are, again, loss of civil liberties. You're reducing their freedoms even further. You're taking away their choice of whether they even want medication or not. The concerns of the larger society is protecting um, the larger society from dangerous people. That's why we do it. If someone's suicidal or homicidal, we can't just have you wander around. Providing help to those who are too mentally incapacitated to understand their own plight. Sometimes what we believe is sometimes people are so mentally incapacitated they don't know right from wrong, not even in their best interest. And so this is why this is here. And notice it says the prevalence of violence among those with a mental disorder, this is in general, is about five times higher than those without a mental disorder. So if you have a mental disorder, you're, the prevalence seems to be five times more likely that you're going to act out on that. And notice it says, here is the tricky part though. Here's why it's not as easy as you might think. More than 90% of those with mental disorders are not violent though. So just because you have a mental disorder is not sufficient enough to warrant a civil commitment. You have to be a danger to yourself or others. And this is how crazy this can get out in the real world. Um, when I worked as a drug and alcohol counselor, I decided to be an emergency uh, caseworker on call for the weekend. We had a case, there was a woman who lived in a nearby little town. She had been in a state hospital before, she was schizophrenic. She would go to the state hospital, they would put her on meds, she would become stable. Once she was stable, they would release her into the community and she would choose not to take her meds. And within six months, she would be you know, yelling at the neighbors and being a danger again and emergency services would be called down. We'd have to do emergency placement, do a court hearing, have her sent back to the state hospital. We would get her stable on medication. They would release her. She would come back to her house and then repeat the cycle. And we actually went to the local judge and said, can't we force her to take her meds? And no. People have a right to choose. And you go, but you know what the pattern's gonna be and it doesn't matter. So when you do a civil commitment, you can force meds when people can't. If you're not on civil commitment, people have a choice. So again, it, it's, 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 it's just a slippery slope. It's just a careful. So right to treatment. Liberty in this country includes right to treatment. That, the case that's famous for that is Wyatt versus Stickney. Um, they actually put a person, um, Wyatt was in a mental health facility. I believe the case, I get these all mixed up sometimes, but I believe this case was um, there were 120 patients per like psychiatrist. And they said that was way too many. And so how can you provide treatment? And this person wanted treatment. Like they, they have a right to access to treatment. So you have to have more humane conditions. Um, the O'Connor versus Donaldson case cannot be confined if no danger to self or others. We can't just lock you up because some doctor says you need to be locked up. You've got to be a danger to yourself or others. That is the key. Um, right to receive treatment in the least restrictive environment that's appropriate. 
And that's why, that's why that one attorney won with the guy that hadn't swung at anybody yet. Because he was in our psychiatric observation cells. And in that cell, he has no way to hurt anybody. So that's the least restrictive. You know, we haven't committed him yet. And as long as he takes his meds in that cell, then that's the least restrictive environment. Because to have him on a civil commitment is more restrictive. You've lost more freedoms, more choice. And then the right to uh, refuse certain forms of treatment. Unless you're committed, unless you're under civil commitment and the care of a doctor, you have the right to say, for example, maybe we say we want to use ECT on you because you're severely depressed. And you have a right to say no. No, I'm not going to let you do that. Technology and me are not getting along today, right? The Protection and Advocacy of Individuals with Mental Illness Act in 1987 came out. So we have another legal standard here. And it established the protection and advocacy system to safeguard the rights of those with serious mental illness. So we can't just lock people up. And they pledge to investigate allegations of abuse. So if people are being abused who are mentally ill, there is an advocacy group to protect them. And again, the belief is they're not able to protect themselves. What we know is that a competent patient can refuse medical treatment. And that involuntary commitment puts the state in charge of treatment. See, that's why that involuntary commitment is such a big issue. The states do support emergency treatment, and that's usually where the 302, the 72-hour emergency treatment, comes into play. And some states, uh, patients can even refuse ECT and psychosurgery, even if on civil commitment. Those are some severe methods or approaches, so there's still some rights that are, you know, kind of uh, given to individuals so that they're not forced to participate in treatments that may or may not be harmful to them. The last, I think, term that we talked about at the beginning was deinstitutionalization. So let's talk a little bit about this. We've got about mm, 10 slides left in 15 minutes. I think we might make it. All right. And then before you guys run out of here, um, I do have some announcements. So please don't run out of here as soon as uh, we're done recording. So deinstitutionalization, what does that mean? That means moving patients out of mental health hospitals, out of facilities, and back into the community. Right? What we know is that in the past we have institutionalized mental health patients. We have state hospital system here in Pennsylvania. We had a pretty elaborate one. Right? And once you are placed in a state hospital system, you could be in there 20, 30 years. Well, the research shows that people actually function worse in a state hospital system on meds once they're stabilized than they do in the community because they give up. They become learned helpless. They become what we call institutionalized. They give up. So if I get you active, and I make you form, feel more normalized, then with treatment, you can live in the community with support systems. And we know people do better, like emotionally better. So um, this process of deinstitutionalization really started because of the 1950s. We talked about that drug revolution. Prior to that, we didn't have a way to treat like severe schizophrenia. Now we had a way to get people back onto the, you know, back in touch with reality. 
So the right to, you know, these things all came about and to lead to deinstitutionalization. Really a history of institutionalization, psychotropic meds discovered in 1950s, the right to a treatment in the least restrictive setting, that case in the 1970s. Many institutions were closed. Mental health facilities were closed as a result. And community services for former mentor patients was uh, set up by the state or local governments. And then psychiatric emergencies would result in temporarily being placed in the hospital, like in a state hospital, but then once you're stabilized, you return to the community. What happened was not all states were prepared for this. Pennsylvania did this. We had a pretty elaborate state hospital system. What they decided to do was that it was very costly to the state taxpayers. And, of course, based on the research, people can function in the community better with support. So what the state government decided to do was they're going to close the state hospitals and then take that money and give it to communities so that they could build support systems within the communities. The problem is that they did it in that order. They shut the state hospitals first and then provided money to the communities to establish their support services. So people were released and the communities weren't ready to deal with them and many fell through the cracks. So it's kind of what happens. Um, not always the best outcome. There's some ethical issues that psychologists must talk about. Let's talk a little bit about these. And there's some court cases that go with them, and that's really kind of the end of the PowerPoint. So the legal aspects of practice, right? The ethics are necessary for treatment specialists. And we have to follow these guidelines in order to be called, you know, ethically sound. And some of the big ones are here, confidentiality, privileged communication, disclosure to protect the client and others from harm, and a duty to warn. And so we're going to make our way through and talk about these different standards. Are we good? Okay. Confidentiality. There is an ethical obligation on the part of the therapist to not reveal sensitive information about others. So if you go and see a therapist, it needs to be confidential. They've got to be, you know, clear. Now, here's the caveat. There's a couple times you can break confidentiality. Now, when I worked for the state, because I worked in a prison system, I told inmates right on the very first day that I met with them, there are three times I'm going to break confidentiality. All right? Actually, four. Four times I'm going to break confidentiality. Number one, if you tell me you're going to hurt yourself, that you're suicidal and you're going to commit suicide, and I believe you're going to do that, I have to break confidentiality. Because if I'm looking out for your best interest, me keeping that information a secret does not benefit you. Number two, if you tell me you're going to harm somebody else, I have to report that. And I have to report that because, again, you harming someone else doesn't benefit you. Right? It could end up in legal charges and everything else. I have to, and I also have to protect the person. The third standard is if you tell me about uh, child abuse. I have to report child abuse. Mandatory reporter, that's what therapists are. So if you go in and you say that you're abusing a child, know that your therapist has to report that. It's not that they um, you know, don't want to support you or help you get through that, but that they have to protect the child. That's what that's all about, is about protecting the child. And then the final one, because I worked in a prison, if you tell me something that you violated a crime, 
then I have to pass that on because I'm working for the state. You're actually telling the state you committed a crime, I have to tell that. Now, if I didn't work for the state, if you come to me and you tell me you committed a crime, it's not child abuse, it's not you know, a danger to yourself or others, how am I going to deal with that? Well, it's still confidential. My job as a therapist is going to be to help you own responsibility for that and turn yourself in. Does it make sense? So that's where my role would be if I wasn't working for the, the state. It's important that the person seeking assistance can feel secure in the notion that the intimate details of the mental or physical health are kept confidential. I can't tell other stuff. I can't tell what kind of sexual stuff you did or didn't do. I can't, I can't tell any of that other stuff because that's protecting you. Again, are you going to dump your soul to me if you know that I can go and tell anybody about it? No. No, hell no. Yes? So I have a question about the four times where you break confidentiality. Right. Um, in your opinion, if you visit a therapist that tells you, like, okay, you're telling them up front there are these three things, mm -hmm. do you think it is wise for that person to then also say, so if you plan to share things with me, keep those in mind because I have to share those, so if you don't want anything to come from that, maybe keep that information to yourself. I wouldn't go that far. I've had someone do that before, and I just found it strange that that was the phrasing that you use because... I, it sounds to me like they're fearful of you telling them too much. On a first? And then I'd have to, and then I have to deal with it. So I was much more just, look, these are the things I have to tell. You need to be aware of that. Now let's move on, right? But if there's ever a point down the road that you tell me that stuff, I'm going to bring it back up. Remember I told you at the beginning, I cannot hold this. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that's part of the therapy is working through well, how are we going to deal with this when it comes out? Now what are we going to do with this? Um, but again, I, I, I would say uh, there's nothing wrong with what they did, but I'd say they're just being very blunt and straightforward. If you tell me anything, no, I am telling. And they might be somebody who has actually had to do that before and then been questioned by a client as to why didn't you tell me? I did tell you, but I didn't realize it. You told me that at the beginning and we've been in therapy now for a year. Yes, we have. And that's how, you know, so it could be someone that's had to report in the past and that's the reason why. Again. You know, therapists are people too. We, we, if we don't feel comfortable, we try to protect ourselves. And I think that's partly what you heard. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So confidentiality. Privileged communication. Now, a patient um, holds a privilege to control the release of private information so that no records are available to others without his or her expressed or written consent. Now, there are... There are some standards that sometimes come in here. The court could request, we want to see your records, right? Could they request it of a therapist? They could, but here's where the, the glitch is. They can't just say, we want all records of the patient. No, 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 no. What specifically do you want? What records specifically? So the court has to be very specific in what they want. They can't just freely flip through anybody's chart. Because if it becomes part of the court record, it can be part of public record. So they have to be incredibly, we need the notes from this date to this date specific to these issues. Okay, if you've written a court order, now I have to comply to that. 
as a therapist. Does that make sense? But that's incredibly specific and that's one of the things to keep in mind. Notice too, it says if the person's a minor, privilege, uh, the privilege is held by the parents or legal guardians. Now that means 16 or older. So if you have a child under 16, parents can know. Over 16, parents might still be paying, but there's this feeling that you have some you have some rights to your privacy too. So there's kind of a sticky wiki in there that gets kind of jammed up. It says the person has a treatment guardian acting on his or her behalf, then the treatment guardian has the privilege, can, ha can determine who or who doesn't get to know the information. You guys fill these out all the time when you go see the medical doctor and it says, who do you want us to be able to talk to? It's privileged communication. Who can we talk to and to what degree? Just appointments, more details, whatever. So that's really, therapists are the same way as medical doctors and everybody else. Um, confidentiality and privileged ex, uh, communication exceptions. Again, there's some circumstances to protect the client from serious harm. There may be ethical or legal requirements for disclosure to take place. Again, it's usually if um, there's safety of the person or others. So danger to self, danger to others, child abuse. Those three are the big ones. Says psychologists have a legal obligation to report child abuse and elderly abuse too, I forgot about that. So even elderly abuse, that's another one that now has been added. So child or elderly abuse, danger to self, danger to others. Um, the rules limiting confidentiality and privilege vary from state to state. General agreement that limits do exist and that therapists are obligated to make their clients aware of the limits. So again, your example, um, I think your therapist was trying to make you uh, understand the limits of confidentiality and privileged communication. Duty to warn. This is a big issue in mental health, right? So duty to warn has to do with, you know, are you able to uh, report? Someone comes in, right? Um, Chelsea, we say you come into a therapy session and you say you're going to you're going to kill Electra because, I don't know, you don't like your name for some reason, right? You just want to, well, I have, I can't just hold that, I can't say confidentiality, I'm not going to tell, right? And I can go tell the police, but I need to do one more step. I need to tell Electra. I need to go that extra step. This is all based on um, a case that happened in 1976. So in 1976, there's the Tarasov versus the Regents of California. A young man came into uh, a college counseling center and said that he was going to kill this girl. The therapist felt that it was privileged and, and confidential communication and that they couldn't tell. So they, were, they held it in and they didn't tell for a little bit. And then they did tell campus police, but they never told anybody else. He went, he killed her. The family sued the therapist and the university. What they found was that it wasn't sufficient enough to just tell the campus police. They had a duty to warn the possible infected victim. They had to let her know. And so now we have a standard that we do. It's not just I'm telling, you know, danger to self or others because I want to. No, I have a legal obligation, a duty to warn. If you tell me you're going to harm someone, I have to tell them to let them know that threats have been made against them. So again, it's these legal standards, right? 
So there's much uncertainty about the limits of these regulations, right? It's not clear. And here's, dig this one. It's not clear if a psychologist is obligated to break confidentiality to warn sexual partners if their client is HIV positive or AIDS. Remember that universal precautions? If you go into nursing, you'll hear this term, you treat everyone like they are infected. And it's because, believe this or not, as a nurse, you do not have a right to know if the client you're working with has HIV or not. You don't. The doctor knows, the client knows. You don't have that right as a nurse or as a dentist or a dental assistant. You don't have the right to know. That's why you treat everyone with universal precautions because then it doesn't matter. But what if you know your client is having sex with multiple partners and doesn't care that they're infecting everyone? Is that placing someone else in danger? Is that reportable? Yeah. Um, can you see, I, I'm, I'm with you, I'm, I don't know if it's, if it's I don't know. Supreme Court case yep. for us to then define that? Yep. It's going to, it's what it's going to take. It's going to have to go some, somewhere. Someone's going to have to either break confidentiality or um, sue over duty to warn. And it's going to take some kind of case to really, because again, that's your medical, that's your medical history. Does, do people have a right? And that's a slippery slope. Once you start to open that, then what's next? How about alcoholic? When you go to, you know, you're going to be a bus driver, and I know you're an active alcoholic. Do I go and tell someone that you're an active alcoholic, but you're a bus driver of school kids? Do you see how it can start to get really muddled? Yeah. There's actually a case in Frederick. It was recent. Okay. That the guy had HIV and he was infecting all these women. He actually got arrested for that. I don't know about how they all found out, but I guess right. multiple women mm -hmm. went to go get checked and then reported it. So I guess it's still ongoing, but I actually know. Yeah, but now here's the question. If that guy was seeing a therapist and the therapist knew that they were doing it, did they have an obligation to tell women? That's the slippery slope. And we don't know that. And until that case makes its way all the way up through, it's a, it's a kind of a just not sure where to go with that. But it's, it, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of cases like that that really are some high-profile cases, but they haven't really sorted through it all. So there's still some uncertainty, believe it or not. Should psychologists prescribe medication? That's another big question. Psychologists are doctors, but not medical doctors. They have their PhD or PsyD, but they never went to medical school. But there's a movement to have therapists prescribe medication. Because here's the deal. Let's say that you're on a med, but you're seeing a psychologist. The psychologist sees you, what, once every week, maybe once every two weeks for counseling. Your psychiatrist sees you once every three months for med checks for 15 minutes. Who knows you more? A therapist. A therapist. Who sees more day-to-day -day changes? A therapist. Who might be better able to prescribe medication? The therapist. Plus, many people get psychotropic medication prescribed by their family doctor, not even a psychiatrist. So if a family doctor is prescribing medication, should psychologists who are licensed 
and have been properly trained, should they be able to? It's an argument. It's cheaper. Psychiatrists charge $300 an hour. Psychologists charge $150. Who do you think your insurance company wants to pay? A cheaper one. Hell yeah. A cheaper one, right? So again, this is some of the stuff. It says the ability to prescribe historically centered on medical doctors, prescription practices are spreading to non-psychiatric physicians like family therapy doctors, pediatricians. Most are prescribed, most psychotropic medications prescribed by non-psychiatric phys physicians. So there are some benefits, right? American Psychological Association in 1996 adopted a policy favoring prescriptive authority for um, psychologists and even proposed training and legislation to go along with it. But there's a big portion of psychologists who still oppose that decision because they say the training is inadequate and they believe that, again, it might weaken this, it might weaken the integrity of the psychological science. In other words, if we're having non-physicians, non-medical doctors prescribe medication, are we really supporting this idea of medication and the importance of it? You know, maybe we need to keep that in the medical professions. So it's still kind of up in the air. Now we have three slides left. I know we're out of time. If you can just give me a couple minutes so we can wrap this up. Does that sound fair? All right. It says, nonetheless, psychologist organizations in several states have introduced legislation. Um, medical psychologists in Louisiana and New Mexico can now hold limited prescription authority. In 2011, the APA, um, anticipating increased involvement in medication management by its membership, issued guidelines. So the APA has come out with guidelines. If you are going to do this, this is what you need to do. Two states have said, yeah, we're going to allow that, but it's still being discussed and still being you know, examined as to whether it's the right thing to do or not. So let's just summarize the chapter. Two slides to summarize the chapter. Sound good? Number one, legal concept of competency to stand trial concerning a person's mental state at the time of the legal proceedings. So when we say competency to stand trial, that's at the time of the proceeding. When we say the concept of insanity, that means at the time of the crime. Did they know right from wrong? And you've got to be able to stand you know, trial before you can say, I'm not guilty by reason of insanity. That's why that follows secondary. The process of involuntary commitment involves a conflict between the right of society to protect itself from dangerous people and the violation of civil liberties on that person itself. Courts have established the right to receive treatment in least restrictive setting. Psychologists have ethical obligation to maintain confidentiality and special circumstances that limit confidentiality and privilege communication. And psychologists are seeking legislation that allows them to prescribe medication. Any questions about any of that? All right, thanks for listening to Chapter 16.